Podcast. Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creags over, over coffee. coffee. All right, guys. So today we have with us Dr. Alyssa Hirsch, who is a third year OBGYN resident in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Oregon Health and Science University. And she is going to be talking to us today about the third stage of labor. So welcome, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so third stage of labor, placental delivery, and then the bleeding that comes after that. Obviously, hugely important topic for all of us practicing obstetrics. We deal with this all the time, multiple times a day, whenever our patients are obviously delivering through really any kind of labor and delivery, right? Um, but Alyssa, because we're doing this in such a like broad strokes, I really wanted to distill down with you. What are our learners supposed to take away today? What are those objectives? Yeah, so in this episode, we will review the normal physiology of the third stage of labor and what is actually happening during the short but important time period. We also will talk about the adverse outcomes that can happen during the third stage of labor, most notably the risk of postpartum hemorrhage and the evidence behind interventions historically used during the third stage to reduce this risk. Unfortunately, there's so much data on this topic that we won't be able to review all possible interventions or management of adverse outcomes in this episode, but I'll mention different different references and studies along the way in case you want to take a deeper dive. All right. Sounds great. So Alyssa, before we get into, you know, the adverse outcomes, postpartum hemorrhage, all that stuff, let's talk normal. So what's normally supposed to happen during that third stage? Yeah. So the third stage of labor is by definition, the time period that starts after delivery of the fetus and ends with delivery of the placenta. After vaginal births, this usually happens in about four to 10 minutes. Historical studies of the third stage have demonstrated that complications start to increase once 30 minutes have passed and the placenta is still in the uterus, which is why manual extraction for retained placenta is generally recommended once you cross that 30-minute threshold. There are three key signs that the placenta has separated from the wall of the uterus and is ready to come out. You can feel the uterus become more globular and firm, the umbilical cord becomes longer, and there is a gush of blood. Sometimes this gush of blood can look worrisome, but it's important to remember that it's a normal part of the process as long as it's not too much. Thanks for that, Alyssa. And, you know, one of the things that obviously with third stage, as I spoke about a second ago, that I already put the cart before the horse is after that placenta, I know that the bleeding is going to come, right? And I'm worried about whether we're going to encounter excess blood loss. But let's define that. What is excess blood loss? According to ACOG's revitalized definition, blood loss over 1,000 milliliters is considered a postpartum hemorrhage or blood loss that occurs along with signs or symptoms that make you suspicious of excessive blood loss within the first 24 hours postpartum. It's important to note that around the world, this definition is highly variable, but the threshold usually ranges somewhere between 500 to 1,000 milliliters. You'll also see that studies on postpartum hemorrhage vary in which outcome they use for their analyses. Physiologically, most patients can lose up to 1,000 milliliters of blood without complications, and you won't typically start to see changes in vital signs or clinical status until this blood loss is greater than 25% of their blood volume. However, you can imagine that for some, especially those starting out with significant anemia, they may be at higher risk for consequences at lower levels of blood loss. 
You would think that estimating blood loss after a birth is easy, but actually it's pretty imprecise. In general, ACOG recommends quantitative methods if you have the resources, such as under buttock stripes and scales to measure saturated towels and things. Some studies have shown that we are fairly inaccurate when we as clinicians estimate it visually. You can read more about this in ACOG's committee opinion on quantitative blood loss and obstetrics. All right. So um, now I know we've talked about, you know, how much blood loss is too much blood loss. But Alyssa, can you remind us of what the main causes are of postpartum hemorrhage? Sure. A quick way to remember this includes consideration of the four T's discussed in ACOG's practice bulletin on postpartum hemorrhage, tone, trauma, tissue, and thrombin. Tone or atony is responsible for three quarters of cases of postpartum hemorrhage and risk factors include anything that makes it harder for the uterus to clamp down, such as multiples, polyhydramnios or infection. Trauma refers to tissue damage like vaginal or cervical lacerations. Tissue refers to retained products in the uterus, such as retained placenta or accretive spectrum disorders. Lastly, thrombin refers to anything that could interfere with the body's ability to clot, like inherited bleeding disorders, infection, or use of anticoagulation. Up to 10% of deliveries are impacted by postpartum hemorrhage in the United States. Many hospitals will have scoring systems that try to place patients into groups like low, medium, or high risk for postpartum hemorrhage. Unfortunately, the important thing to remember is that postpartum hemorrhage still happens in totally unsuspecting patients with no risk factors. So that's why certain universally applied interventions have been studied for prevention. Thanks for that and the reminder on those four T's. Um, So critical, I think, to remember in all stages of training, really. You know, it seems like with a lot of the medications, though, and the tools that we have nowadays that we ought to be able to prevent postpartum hemorrhage from happening. But as you mentioned, it's really not the case. It happens quite a bit, actually. Um, You know, I've encountered in my training to this notion of active management of the third stage of labor as a means supposedly to prevent hemorrhage. Um, What exactly does active management of the third stage entail? This term, active management of the third stage of labor, refers to a group of interventions that has been globally disseminated with the goal of preventing postpartum hemorrhage. Originally, the components of active management included giving uterotonic medication, controlled cord traction, external uterine massage, and early cord clamping. However, studies that have tried to assess the effectiveness of this group of interventions together have found conflicting results. Therefore, studies nowadays mostly just try to focus on studying one intervention at a time. For example, there's pretty strong and consistent evidence on the benefits of delayed cord clamping, which we will discuss in a bit. So you can already see that most clinicians don't use all original components of active management. Of all the interventions used for postpartum hemorrhage prevention, the uterotonic is generally considered to be the most important. If you think about it, this makes sense because the purpose of any intervention during this time is to encourage the placenta to separate from the wall of the uterus so it can be delivered. Uterine contractions that are stronger or more frequent can theoretically make this happen faster and more effectively. Oxytocin has been the most commonly used uterotonic for prevention of postpartum hemorrhage, but there are other ones that have been studied as well, like mesoprostol, ergometrine, and carbitocin, which isn't currently available in the United States. 
A big network meta-analysis published in 2018 set out to examine all the uterotonics individually and in combination with each other to determine the optimal strategy using all the studies that had been previously conducted, studying different comparisons or combinations of agents. It was found that a combination of ergometrine or mesoprostol with oxytocin or carbitocin on its own may be more effective than oxytocin alone. However, ergometrine and mesoprostol both have additional side effects, and ergometrine, as you know, can't be used in the setting of hypertension or certain cardiac conditions. In general, the network meta-analysis found that using any uterotonic was more effective than placebo or no uterotonic for preventing postpartum hemorrhage, which does give us confidence that at least using something is helpful. But the big takeaway is that there may be more effective uterotonic regimens you can consider using that aren't just oxytocin alone, and we could potentially be preventing more postpartum hemorrhage than we are currently. All right. Well, thank you so much for that review of all the different uterotonics. Um, so actually, you know, um, during our residency, we actually started reaching for tranexamic acid or TXA for prevention of postpartum hemorrhage, um, which, you know, I, I'd like to say is, is a newer thing because I'd like to think that we did our residency pretty recently. Um, so, so where does TXA fit into this picture, Alyssa? Yeah, that's a great question. TXA is a relatively newer drug in the field of obstetrics that does not work through increasing uterine contractions. Instead, if you remember from pharmacology, TXA works as an anti-fibrinolytic agent through interfering with the breakdown of clots. It does have some minor side effects and should not be used in someone with a known blood clot and used with caution among those at high risk for clots. TXA doesn't really fit into that original definition of active management since it has a different mechanism of action. Many studies have now been conducted on TXA and for both prevention and management of postpartum hemorrhage, and TXA has always been studied in combination with a uterotonic. It's not meant to replace the uterotonic, just tackle bleeding in a different way. Recent meta-analyses have found that risks of postpartum hemorrhage and other hemorrhage-associated outcomes are improved across the board for both vaginal and cesarean births. However, as nothing is stagnant in medicine, a new large randomized trial found that use of TXA in addition to uterotonic at the time of cesarean birth did not reduce the primary composite outcome or of death or blood transfusion by hospital discharge or seven days among 11,000 participants, which was more participants than any prior study or meta-analysis. Given this large study showed no benefit, the utility of routine TXA is now being questioned. However, a different new randomized trial assessing the use of TXA as part of a multi-component intervention called Emotive after vaginal deliveries did find their primary composite outcome of postpartum hemorrhage greater than 1,000 milliliters, laparotomy for bleeding or death from bleeding was lower among those who received the intervention that included TXA. The takeaway from all this is that there's conflicting evidence for routine routine TXA use at all deliveries, but selective use or use as part of a bundle may be effective. You should stay tuned as more studies are expected to be published soon. All right. Well, that's the new stuff. I want to go back to the old stuff, actually. Um, Tell me a little bit more about these other things and the evidence behind them. You talked about uh, controlled cord traction and external uterine massage, for instance. 
Yeah, so controlled cord traction is applied usually through putting a clamp or other holder on the umbilical cord and using downward steady traction to help it slowly detach from the wall of the uterus to deliver. You should start to see signs of placental separation before applying this traction or you'll put yourself at risk for a cord avulsion or uterine inversion. The main benefit with controlled cord traction is a reduction in the, need, in the risk for needing manual extraction of the placenta and there are also modest reductions in time to placental delivery and blood loss. External uterine massage has been studied both before and after placental delivery, but the data has not shown that it's beneficial for postpartum hemorrhage prevention in either scenario. The data shows no reduction in blood loss or improvement in other secondary hemorrhage outcomes. Furthermore, it can be uncomfortable and interfere with early bonding moments for the new family. I do want to mention, though, that I'm specifically referring to uterine massage for prevention, which is different than what you might use for treatment of postpartum hemorrhage or regular assessment of uterine tone postpartum. Wow, that's actually really good to know uh, because I feel like we are still very routinely doing that uterine massage uh, postpartum immediately. So um, let's hear about that last bit about early versus delayed cord clamping that you mentioned previously. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, early cord clamping was initially used for the purpose of preventing blood loss for the pregnant person. However, many studies have since been published showing there is no increase in blood loss for the pregnant person, and there are numerous benefits for neonates with delayed cord clamping. Delayed cord clamping is when you wait at least 30 to 60 seconds to clamp the cord, with the goal of enabling additional blood flow to the neonate. For term neonates, the benefits include increased hemoglobin, higher birth weight, and reduced anemia for the first three to six months of life, but a slightly increased risk of hyperbilirubinemia requiring phototherapy. For preterm neonates, delayed cord clamping is associated with reduced risk for intraventricular hemorrhage and death before hospital discharge, so you can see the benefits are even more impactful for preterm births. ACOG has a committee opinion on delayed cord clamping if you want to read more. Another intervention that's also important to discuss when reviewing cord management is cord milking, which is when you manually push blood through the cord toward the neonate. In 2019, a big JAMA study found increased rates of intraventricular hemorrhage among those that had cord milking, particularly among those less than 28 weeks of gestation. So cord milking is no longer recommended for very preterm infants. For older neonates, the evidence is insufficient to make a statement, but generally cord milking has fallen out of favor because of the known harm for those preterm neonates. All right. Well, I think you've taken us now from start to finish of the third stage of labor. Um, and I think that we know, too, that you are a new author on a review of the third stage of labor that's out in the gray, um, which is super fascinating. And of course, we'll link to it on the website. Um, no, Faye and I usually close out episodes with kind of summaries of the key points to take away. Um, but since you've already just given us a great overview, do you mind going through some of those key points? Sure. So first we reviewed the definition of the third stage of labor, which occurs between fetal and placental delivery. It typically lasts four to 10 minutes with complications starting to increase after 30 minutes. We then reviewed the ACOG definition of postpartum hemorrhage, which is blood loss greater than 1,000 milliliters regardless of mode of delivery or blood loss along with signs of, exce of excessive blood loss. We talked about the four T's of etiologies of postpartum hemorrhage, including tone, tissue, trauma, and thrombin. We reviewed the original components of active management of the 
third stage of labor, consisting of a uterotonic, early cord clamping, controlled cord traction, and external uterine massage. However, we discussed that not all of these components are still evidence-based. We reviewed that there may be more effective uterotonic regimens than oxytocin alone for preventing postpartum hemorrhage. We also reviewed the data on TXA and that it may be an effective adjunct to uterotonic for prevention of postpartum hemorrhage, but current evidence is conflicting and there's insufficient evidence to support its broad use at this time after all births. We discussed that there is evidence supporting the use of controlled cord traction, particularly for reducing the need for manual extraction of the placenta, and that external uterine massage is not effective for preventing postpartum hemorrhage. We reviewed that early cord clamping has largely been replaced with delayed cord clamping due to the known benefits for both preterm and term neonates. Lastly, we reviewed that cord milking may be harmful for very preterm neonates without sufficient data to support using it for neonates at higher gestational ages. Well, awesome. That is a great summary. Thank you again so much, Alyssa, for coming onto the podcast and giving us all this great information for the third stage of labor. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Well, I think that does it for today. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creags Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Creags Over Coffee One, on Instagram and Facebook at Creags Over Coffee. Or if you love the show, want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash Coffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. For show notes for this show and all of our other episodes, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week, go ahead and go onto our website. That's at www.creagsrivercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hi, email us, creagsrivercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>